Okay, well, our topic today that, that we were asked to speak on is twofold. Obviously, you can see that. Don't, um, don't look at the size of the type and assume that one is more important than the other. They are both vital. Either one without the other is pretty much dead. So just bear that in mind, okay? Um, going to have to cover some ground rather quickly. If I start to rattle and you can't understand what I'm saying, wave a hand at me, and I'll try to slow down a little bit, but I, we do want to move rather quickly, okay? So we're just going to start off, since we have two topics, we're going to start with the health message. I'm going to assume a, a, a considerable level of understanding. I'm not going to explain what we normally think of as the health message. I'm not going to tell you what you should and shouldn't eat or how many hours you should sleep. I'm not going to go into any of that, okay? I do want to start off by pointing out that it was, it was kind of interesting that the health message came to the church just a couple of weeks after we finally got ourselves organized and, and formally organized as the Seventh-day Adventist church. And it's, it's kind of like the Lord was saying, okay, cool, now we're ready to take another step forward. You finally got your act together and here we go. And so here's this famous quotation. You've probably read this at some time or the other. It was at the house of Brother A. Hilliard at Otsego, Michigan, June 6, 1863, that the great subject of health reform was opened before me. Okay? Health reform is a big deal. It, it, it's always been a big deal. It was a big deal at that time, and it remains so today. Okay? Um, it took some time for the church to collectively kind of wrap their minds around this instruction that had been given to them. I rather suspect there are still things that we need to understand better, but, you know, whatever, okay? Probably, though, the central idea, the one thing that most people kind of took away from their contact with or their exposure to the health message at that time would be something along the lines of this statement here. We are not our own. This life is not ours. That's because we believe in creation, right? And as the property of God, it is our duty as far as possible to keep our bodies free from disease. Well, that's good. That seems to have been kind of the take-home message, and so we began working on that. Um, fortunately, God gave us some instructions so we would have some idea of how to keep our bodies free from disease, because nobody was doing a very good job of that back in 1863. <laughs> Um, and we, you know, so the Lord included some of those things that I'm not covering, you know, a, a healthful dietary and you know, all these other, other topics. And so we began to work on keeping our bodies free from disease. And to a, a very significant degree, we've succeeded. It's, it's amazing. We've actually done so well that the world has noticed us. Um, this is a nice stat statistic, right? Adventists in California had a 31% lower risk of developing any cancer when compared to other Californians. Well, good. What's, what's not to like about that, right? And then the studies keep piling up. The Adventist health, um, health studies, there we go. Adventist health studies, you know, pointing out interesting things. That's all great stuff. I enjoy that. I, I try to follow that, keep up to speed on it. Reasonably, I'm not a health professional as such, but I try to keep informed, and it's, it's great stuff. I do want to point our attention, though, primarily to, uh, oh, uh, one more slide. There we go. Uh, there we go. We call it the Adventist Advantage. This came out what, last month, I think, or something like that. Okay. We live longer than everybody else. That's a great line. You know, I mean, I use it. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. 
But that's not what we're talking about today. That's not the health message that we're angling towards. Let's put it that way, okay? There's another aspect of this health reform thing that we have not paid nearly as much attention to, and it's summed up nicely in this statement. The light God has given on health reform is for our salvation and the salvation of the world. Yeah, I get really tired, just to be honest. I get tired of this, yeah, well, you know, um, what you eat and what you drink is not a salvational issue. <laughs> it sure can be, you know. It, it may be not always, right? You know, if you want to have a big discussion as to the propriety of eating linkettes instead of Big Franks or something like that, then, you know, go ahead. I don't know that that would be salvational in my book. Um, but there is something about health reform, which is for our salvation. And that's what we've not paid as much attention to. But even more interesting to me is the last clause, the salvation of the world. There's something in health reform for the salvation of the world. And we've not paid a lot of attention to that. Okay? Okay. Well, that's what we're going to be looking at because... It's that aspect that ties health reform to the, I forgot, forgot my title, righteousness by faith, there we go. <laughs> I knew there was another, another aspect. Okay, it's, it's, it's this aspect that ties health reform to righteousness by faith, okay? Um, now, if you, if you just, you know, go to a good Adventist library and you say, I would like to learn about righteousness by faith. You know, I, I don't know how many books there are, how many sermons have been given, how many seminars on this, that, and the other aspect of righteousness by faith, and I'm not complaining about that. It's a, a great topic, okay? But, you know, as I was actually, it wasn't until I was putting this particular talk together that I, I, I learned something new. It was interesting. Ellen White doesn't use the word or the phrase righteousness by faith very much. It's, that's just not the way she spoke of it much. If you go looking for things, you'll find that that phrase shows up 56 times on the Ellen White CD-ROM. If you just, you know, righteousness by faith in quotation marks, you get 56 hits, okay? But 27 of those are in titles or comments written by compilers, so they're probably not her words anyhow. So you throw those out. 14 more are occurrences in compilations, you know, little devotional books and things where it's just quoting from an original source. So you throw those 14 out, right? So that leaves 15 original occurrences of the phrase righteousness by faith. But only seven, only seven of those, are, of those original occurrences are actually noun phrases. The rest just use by faith as, as a prepositional phrase, okay? Now, maybe you're not a grammarian, and that's fine. I'll forgive you, okay? even though you did have 12 years of English class, somewhere along the line probably, but anyhow. <laughs> so you may not recognize the difference, but here's the difference, okay? Here's a noun phrase. Why try to be more minute than is inspiration on the vital question of righteousness by faith? Where that, all three words, that's the thing she's talking about, right? That's a noun, a noun there, okay? Here's a prepositional phrase. The unfailing, inexhaustible righteousness of Christ becomes our righteousness, by faith, right? So righteousness by faith is not being used as a unit there. So only seven times, only seven times does she say, don't worry about it because our topic is still good. She just liked the expression justification by faith, okay? 
I don't know. I could have skipped all that trivia and probably saved some time. But OK. So if you go looking at the topic within advanced history, you know, the, the, the lead story is going to come to you with the, the dateline, you know, Minneapolis, 1888. Okay? And this is, hopefully you've all read this, but refresh your memories. The Lord in his great mercy sent a most precious message to his people through elders Wagner and Jones. This message was to bring more prominently before the world the uplifted Savior, the sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. It presented justification through faith and the surety. It invited the people to receive the righteousness of Christ, which is made manifest in obedience to all the commandments of God. Carrying on, many had lost sight of Jesus. They needed to have their eyes directed to his divine person, to his merits, his changes love for the human family. All power is given into his hands that he may dispense rich gifts unto men, imparting the priceless gift of his own righteousness to the helpless human agent. This is the message that God commanded be given to the world. It is the third angel's message, which is to be proclaimed with a loud voice and attended with the outpouring of his spirit in large measure. Okay? Now, just kind of focus on that last sentence for just a second, and, and you can see that today we could be just as well talking about health reform and the third angel's message, or health reform and the latter rain, or health reform and the loud cry, okay? Because they're all so tightly integrated, okay? No matter which title we want, might want to pick, right, the, the question still remains, so what's the connection between the two? What does health reform have to do with the third angel's message? What does it have to do with the loud cry? What does it have to do with the latter rain? Okay? So that's what we want to explore. And we'll begin with another fascinating statement from Ellen White. She said, after the meeting at Minneapolis, this is 1888, after the 1888 Righteousness by Faith General Conference with Jones and Wagner, after that, Dr. Kellogg was a converted man. And we all knew it. We could see the converting power of God working in his heart and life. That really, you know, kind of grabbed me the first time I read that. This is 1888. Dr. Kellogg has been the medical director of the Battle Creek Sanitarium for 12 years already. He's a church member in good and regular standing. But now, he's converted. <laughs> Seems like a good thing. Now he's converted, and he's converted in such a way that everybody knew it. They could all see it. So what was different? Yeah. He did not stop going to the bar on Friday nights. Because he never had done that. Okay? That's not what the conversion was. Okay? And simply put, basically here's what happened. Is that when Dr. Kellogg was converted, he started being nice to people. <laughs> you know? And I know that sounds technical, okay, and complicated, and all that sort of stuff, you know. But that's what converted people do. Here's a statement. I really like this. This ties a lot of things together. It says, while the believer is justified because of the merit of Christ, he is not free to work on righteousness. Faith works by love and purifies the soul. Faith buds and blossoms and bears a harvest of precious fruit. That's what was happening in Dr. John Harvey Kellogg's life. Okay? Where faith is, good works appear. Now notice what the good works are. The sick are visited. 
the poor are cared for. The fatherless and the widows are not neglected. The naked are clothed. The destitute are fed. Christ went about doing good. And when men are united with him, they start being nice to the children of God. And meekness and truth guide their footsteps. The expression of the countenance reveals their experience. And men can see, everybody can tell, that they have been with Jesus and learned of him. Now, I really, really like this statement, but I'll have to be honest, because it, it terrifies me at times. Because there's a very strong implication in all of that, that those who don't visit the sick and care for the poor and clothe the naked and feed the destitute, they may not actually be converted. It's a pretty strong hit that direction. And I'll just be honest. That, that bothers me. Learning how to just be nice to, to people is it, actually harder than it sounds. <laughs> okay, well, we need to move along. So we're going to jump about four years down from 1888. We're going to go to 1892. Another very famous statement. The time of test is just upon us, for the loud cry of the third angel has already begun in the revelation of the righteousness of Christ, the sin-pardoning Redeemer. This is the beginning of the light of the angel whose glory shall fill the whole earth. Okay? This one statement, probably more than anything else, is what puts 1888 on the map. Okay? Yeah. I mean... This is the closest we ever got. <laughs> I mean, God's church. This is, this is as close as we have ever come to finishing God's work. You go, you march down through all the little, uh, you know, eschatological time charts that Adventists are good for, you know. And, and the closest, the farthest, the farthest we've ever gone is the beginning of the loud cry. That makes us pretty noteworthy. And I think it's entirely understandable that people have been gripped by this and studied it and pursued it probably ever since she wrote that, right? Well, <clears throat> still the big question out of that whole issue, as soon as you recognize this fact, the next big question is, so what happened? You know? It, when you read in Revelation, you don't really get the impression that the loud cry is going to take like 120 years. You know? So what happened? And... and I think it's probably fairly safe to say the general consensus is that something died on the vine, never fully came to fruit, okay? I puzzled over this along with everybody else, smarter men than myself, uh, and women, but um, about three years ago, I had, some, I had a document fall into my lap that hadn't really been paid any attention to for 100 years, and it just kind of poof, and gave me a whole new view of it. So I want to share some ideas with you. Um, I just saw that for the first time a couple years ago, but the comments were actually made about two months after this statement. Okay? So Ellen White writes here at the close of uh, November of 1892, and we're going to jump forward just a few months to the general conference session of 1893. Okay? And the GC session that year, well, at first there was a ministerial institute. It usually takes about 10 days or so. I forget exactly on this case. Uh, and then it, that went directly on into the general conference session, right? So it started at the end of January, went all the way through February and, and into March. They ran a little long in those days. <laughs> I don't know how many people could really do that any longer. 
But this is, the, this is the occasion, this is what we're talking about, is the General Conference of 1893. Probably this General Conference is best remembered as a general rule for this series of talks that were given by Elder A.T. Jones, right? A 24-part series on the third angel's message. That's been reprinted, I think, at least three times. Uh, I know there are copies of it available at some of the booths out there. If you've not read them, they're worth the read. It's good, it's good material, okay? Um, but, you know, when you... Uh, I, I'm just going to give my opinion. I think it's generally agreed upon, but, you know, there, I'm sure that somebody else may have a different idea. But it's kind of like the, the whole 1888 emphasis and... Um, just the strength of the message, I would probably say that this series right here kind of represents the high water mark. And that after that, it tended to quietly kind of, you know, it's not that people stop talking about it. There's another series from 1895. It's good too, right? But I, I would say that 1893 maybe represents kind of the high water mark of the influence of the 1888 message as, as we normally think of it. Something else happened in that general conversation that we don't know much about. And that is that Dr. Kellogg presented eight talks on medical missionary work. His were just given between February 5 and 15. You know, when Kellogg started out with these talks, his first couple of talks are so simple and so basic that I, I almost imagine the audience getting a little bored. It's like, oh, yeah, okay, good. We've seen that before. But... There's nothing wrong with being basic sometimes, okay? So he started off with this kind of stuff. He said, he said, he said for my first talk, all I really want to do is establish the fact that God's people should be doing good works. <laughs> that's, the, that's the sum and substance. And he had lots of support for it. Things like this, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the life to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. I just want to point out one cute little thing in this. Notice this, God gives us richly all things to enjoy. That's why he gives them to us, is to enjoy them. Let them do good, ready to give. Well, if I'm supposed to enjoy this thing that God has given me, why would I give it away? And the Bible verse is? It's more blessed to give than to receive. That's the way to have fun. Start giving this stuff away. <laughs> Use whatever the Lord gives you. Oh, here you go, here you go, here you go. Now do it intelligently. I'm, I'm you know, I'm, okay, right. Okay, calm down, let's go. <laughs> More Bible verses, and he quoted these, right? That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. And let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs. I like that phrase right there, meet urgent needs. And that maybe kind of gives us a hint of where the good works should be headed, okay? To meet urgent needs, that they may not be unfruitful. And the last one from Titus here, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Zealous. Kind of excited about it. Yeah, let's go do some good works. It's fun. <laughs> okay? It's a good thing. It's not penance. <laughs> okay? Well, this is Dr. Kellogg speaking here. He says in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul exhorts us, be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ, who, Peter tells us, left us an example that ye should follow his steps. Okay, so 
Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. And Jesus left us an example. We're supposed to follow him. And then he says in Acts 10.38, Peter tells us that Christ went about doing good. It is evident then, Dr. Kellogg said, that if we are Christ's servants, if we follow Christ, we must also go about doing good. We are not to wait for the opportunities for doing good to come to us. But we must go about doing good, seeking opportunities to do good, to help the needy, to bless and comfort the sorrowing, to uplift the fallen. We must search them out, not wait for them to hunt us up and move us to action by their appeals. Now, just a little uh, terminology thing from back in 100 years ago. Who are the fallen? Yeah, but that's not what it meant. <laughs> Who are the fallen? If we're going to help the, to uplift the fallen, who are the fallen? Well, you guys are really out of touch with this, this ancient usage, this archaic. Yeah. No, the fallen is a very clear group. Drunks and prostitutes. They are the fallen. Okay, that's, that's exactly what the term meant 100 years ago. Okay, drunks and prostitutes. They have fallen to alcohol or they have fallen into immoral practices. It's not that that's the only immoral practice, but you know, let's go on. He says, we are not to be narrow in our charities, for Paul says to us in Galatians 6.10, let us do good unto all men. I don't know to narrow this down. He says we're supposed to be good to all men, right? It is true, he adds, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. So there's an emphasis on church members, okay? But this does not excuse us from doing good to those who are not of the household of faith, for he says all men. And certainly we cannot hide behind this apology, for we have not been good even to those belonging to the household. We have not been good even to church members, is what he just said. Now, up to this point in his presentations, Dr. Kellogg had been, you know, kind of discreetly general in what he was saying, Okay? But this is, this is starting to sound a little pointed here. What's he, what's he really driving at? Okay, well, we'll come back to it, but we're going to have to do a little more reading first, okay? He went on. He said, for years and years, we have been well able to furnish a home for the aged, the infirm, the homeless, for poor widows, worn-out ministers, aged pilgrims, and helpless children, members of our denomination, old pioneers in the cause, who gave liberally of their property in the early days when the work was just beginning and whose faith in the truths which we confess, which profess, has led them to put all their earnings into the cause instead of hoarding up a competency for themselves. All these worthy and deserving ones who appeal to us on fraternal as well as humanitarian grounds, we have neglected in a manner which has become a denominational disgrace. Well, what's he talking about here? Okay, well, two things primarily. Number one, at that point in time, we, we, didn't, we didn't have a retirement system. If you were an Adventist minister or an Adventist anything, you got paid as long as you worked. When you stopped working, you stopped getting paid. It was pretty simple, actually. There's a certain logic, cause and effect type of thing to it. You know, but it makes it really tough to retire. <laughs> All of a sudden, you're old, you're tired, you're worn out, and you're broke. And so, you know, the church didn't really step up to the plate as we could have, should have. Okay, Ellen White wrote about that, and so we, we you know, eventually got around to changing things. Okay? So Kellogg wanted to do something for those old folks. And he also wanted to do something for orphans. He'd done a little study, and he knew of at least 600 
Adventist orphans in the United States at that point in time. And we had no orphanage. And, and, and some of them were being cared for in county poorhouses. Some of them were in Catholic orphan homes. Some of them were in, in non-Adventist neighbors. Some of them were living on the street. He said, we ought to have an orphanage. You checked with Ellen White. She says, yeah, it's a great idea. We ought to have an orphanage. So two years before this, at the General Conference of 1891, Kellogg had made a motion. He said, why don't we start an orphanage? And a little place for some, some of the old workers, too. Okay? And it was voted, all duly voted. Oh, I, you know, everybody, okay. So now we have General Conference authorization. They took Kellogg and, oh, I don't know, it was about eight people or something like that. And they made a little committee and they said, okay, you guys make it happen. You can raise money through the review and just, just go ahead and do it. Okay? So they started running ads. It's like a weekly ad in the review about this project. And please send your money. And the church, by and large, ignored them. And after a year, they didn't have much money at all. They had enough money, they bought a little piece of property. They didn't have any money to build an orphanage, let alone do anything else. The money had not come in. What had come in during that time, now we're talking 1891 to about 1892, okay? What had come in during that year were Adventist orphans arriving on the train from who knows where with a little note clipped on their shirt that said, Orphanage, Battle Creek. So now Kellogg's got 30 orphans and no orphanage, which is an awkward situation to be in, I'm sure. I've never tried that, but there's reasons why the Lord hasn't done that to me. Anyhow, so um, he got a couple nurses from the sanitarium and rented a little cottage. He says, okay, you guys keep these kids happy. You know, he started really praying. He says, Lord, he says, I need some serious money. The church is not stepping up to the plate. I need some serious money. So, well, okay, to make a long story a little bit shorter, the Lord answered his prayer. This is what happened. This is the Haskell Home for Orphan Children. Okay? It was paid for entirely by Mrs. Carolyn Haskell. $30,000. Now, in case you're wondering what inflation does, yeah, try building one of those for $30,000. Okay? You couldn't buy the windows for $30,000. <laughs> uh, this, this housed 100 orphans. Uh, it was... Um, psychologically advanced. They didn't just have a big mass of uh, uncontrolled little kids running around being brats. They actually split it up into, I think it was like eight or nine or something like that, family homes or family units. So you had you know, a, a four-month-old and a year-and-a-half-old and a, year a two-year-old and a, you know, a five-year-old and whatever. So they, they functioned more or less like a family, much better environment. Okay? Now, the interesting thing, though, about the Haskell home and Mrs. Haskell, now she did this as a, as a memorial for her husband, Charles Haskell, who had died about a year before and left her a fair chunk of change. The Haskells were not Adventists. They were no relation to Stephen Haskell, just a similarity of name. These were non-Adventists paying for an Adventist orphanage. Well, Kellogg was doing other things as well. In 1892 as well, he started the Visiting Nurses Program. This is, I think, a picture of the very first visiting nurse. This is Emily Schranz, okay? And you'll notice that this was back in the days when they still knew the difference between a nurse's uniform and a pair of pajamas. Um, <laughs> I really like nurses in uniforms. I think it looks professional as opposed to some other options, but then I have nothing to do with it, so, you know, I understand. Okay, but, so a non-Adventist paid for this program too, Okay? His daughter had been a, a patient at the sanitarium. 
And she'd gone back down to Chicago to have an operation. I don't know why. I mean, Dr. Kellogg was setting world records for successful operations. Maybe it was some specialty something. I don't know exactly what it was. She went down to Chicago, had the operation. It was not a success. On her deathbed, she said, Daddy, says, as a memorial to me, I want you to put up the money to bring a Battle Creek nurse from the sanitarium. There are no nurses in the world like those nurses in Battle Creek. Bring them down here and have them work for the poor in Chicago. And that's how it happened. Paid for by a non-Adventist. And then one Friday evening in early November of 1892, it's like Dr. Kellogg gets tired of this whole thing. He says, you know, the non-Adventists are doing this and the non-Adventists are doing that. And it's, here we are in Battle Creek with all these Adventists. It seems like we ought to be able to do something. And so he called together a bunch of the workers at the sanitarium and he said, let's start a Christian help band. And they all said, yeah, what's that? <laughs> What is a Christian help band? This is another one of those really technical type of theological things. A Christian help band is a band of Christians who help people. Okay? So they set up the first... Um, uh, we'll come back to that in just a moment. They set up that, that night in early November, 1892, they set up Christian help band number one. They elected a young Australian nursing student by the name of Simmons, Simmons to be, the, uh, to be the, the first leader of it. Within a couple of months, a few months, they had 16 of these nine-member health bands. That's 144 people spending four, five, six hours a week going about the town of Battle Creek finding people to help. Okay? Sometimes they found people who needed food, so they took them food. That's creative. Sometimes there were kids who didn't have warm clothes. In you know, Michigan, they say it can get cold here. So they took them clothes, right? They helped people find jobs. They took care of the sick. They taught people how to cook more healthily. They split firewood, <laughs> okay? They just helped people. 144 Seventh-day Adventists wandering around town, helping people. <laughs> that's that's got to start having an impact after a little while. Well, this was all happening while Ellen White was off in Australia, but so what did she think of it? Well, it turns out she was actually a fan. Of all the various aspects of health work, medical missionary work, the very simplest Christian help band is the, one that, the only one that I, to my mind at least, I don't remember her ever rebuking or correcting or warning against. It was always, oh yeah, do that. Yep, do that. Christian help band. Great idea. Go ahead. Do it. Please. Hello. How many people want to sign up for a Christian help band? Every, just do it. You know, she never was, everything else that Kellogg did, she would end up having to write and say, well, Dr. Kelly, you know, we got a problem with this. You know, you're kind of distorting it, and it's heading in the wrong direction here. It's, there's a problem with this here. You know, caution, bring it back, bring it back, bring it. Christian help bands, just do it. <laughs> it's technical, I know. Anyhow, she wrote this. The very work, now she's talking primarily about the Christian help bands here. The very work Dr. Kellogg has been managing is the kind of work the whole of our churches are bound Stop. What's the word bound mean? Under constraint. Yeah, tied, okay? They are bound to do under covenant relation to God. What is a covenant? A contract or an agreement. So if you're bound to do something by a contract and you don't do it, You've broken the contract. They are to love God supremely and their neighbor as themselves. They should start being nice to people. Statement goes on. 
This work is the work that churches have left undone. And they cannot prosper until they have taken hold of this work in the cities, in highways, and in hedges. You know, I, I, I really like superlatives and, and these, these words of extreme, you know. Cannot. They cannot prosper. So here's a hot tip for you if you like this sort of thing. If you want a challenge in life, that's what really turns your crank. You want to get up every morning. Now that's a challenge. Oh, yeah, I'm going to take on a challenge, okay? Here's a challenge for you. Find something God says can't be done and spend the rest of your life trying to do it. There you go. That's a challenge. You'll fail. But if all you wanted was a challenge, you got one. Me? I'm a wimp. I like challenges where I have a chance of succeeding. (laughs) They cannot prosper until they have taken hold of this work in the cities and highways and in hedges. Then angels of God will cooperate with human instrumentalities and religious system will be inaugurated to relieve the necessity of the suffering human beings who are in physical, mental, and moral need. Now, this, this idea right here, religious system. Now, I'll just be honest. I'm kind of a fly by the seat of my pants kind of a guy. I'm not the best systems analyst manager kind of a guy. That's just not me. Okay? But there needs to be system in this. And fortunately, there are people who have other talents than I do. And I'm curious. I want to see this system. I want to see what, what does it say? A religious system will be inaugurated. I want to see what that looks like. Go on. My brethren in America, she's writing from Australia. In the place of questioning and criticizing Dr. Kellogg, because he is doing the class of work he is. What class of work was he doing? Orphanage, Christian help work, visiting nurses work. Yeah, medical missionary work, okay? It's messy work. You try working with a drunk. You know? It's messy work. Instead of criticizing Kellogg because of the class of work he is, because he's doing the class of work he is, when you do your God-given service, you will be heart and soul engaged in doing the same kind of work, which will be of far more account in the sight of God than for so many to flock into Battle Creek where they become religious dwarfs because they do not do the work God has appointed them. Ouch. So Kellogg's talking here. Now he's back at the, we're back at the General Conference of 1893, okay? And I, I, I just alluded to this very briefly, but... For some reason or the other, I have my suspicions, but let's skip all of those. For some reason or the other, none of Kellogg's comments were recorded in the General Conference Bulletin that year. He was just edited out. On the very first page, there's a thing that says Dr. Kellogg will be giving a series on medical missionary work, but it's not reported. You'll find one or two other references that says, oh, Dr. Kellogg said something last night. But, but, so it went, it went for 100 years without anybody knowing about this, whatever, Okay. That's, that's, this is, this is, these, these comments right here just really kind of turned my life around, okay? So, Kellogg's giving his presentations, and he's going along talking about good works and very simple things. It wasn't until his fifth presentation that he mentioned the, um, oh, dear, I've been looking at the wrong clock. I'm sorry, Don. I'll hurry. <laughs> I was seeing that 11.23, and I thought that was, it meant I'd been 11 minutes going here, but it's been longer than that, I see. Okay. <laughs> We're going to go very quickly right now. <laughs> Dr. Kellogg said a very simple thing. I'm, just, I'm not going to read this. I'm, you can try and double, double task if you want. How's that? Basically what he said is, brothers and sisters, the loud cry is what you find in the last verses of Isaiah 58. Then you will ride in the high places of the earth. I'll feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father. You'll call and he'll answer. You'll cry and he'll say, here I am. 
Right? He said, your light shall rise in the darkness. Your darkness shall, shall shine as the noonday. You know? uh, you'll be the repairers of the breach, restorer of the paths to dwell in. You'll be the... Um, what's the other two phrases? I got myself all out of order here. I have the whole thing memorized. But anyhow, um, anyhow, skipping all those promises, the last of Isaiah 58, he says, that's the loud cry. That's what it'll look like. He says, but it's all conditional. If you deal your bread to the hungry, if you bring the poor or cast out to your house, if you break every yoke, let the oppressed go free. Those kind of things. That's, that's, that is his simple concept right there. He said, the loud cry requires that we manifest the character of God. If we want the loud cry to begin, brethren, that is the place where it will begin. I want to just skip down to this statement right here. He said, this is, I think, is, is perhaps as close as he ever came to it. He said, if the loud cry has been begun by our people, it must be because we have just begun to do a little in the way of letting our light shine. Now, what's really kind of funny about this, ironic, is that he himself in the last two years had started all these things. That was the medical missionary program. And if there's any connection at all, he's the guy more than anybody else who was doing it. But he knew it was so little, it's like he could hardly believe that it had even begun. I mean, you know, Ellen White said that the loud cry had begun, but, you know, they, they didn't cover that in the front page of the New York Times. Nobody else had noticed that the loud cry had begun. And so Kellogg was like, if it's going to begin, it's going to begin by us doing the work that we're supposed to do. Notice this. This is Ellen White's statement one more time here. Notice this one word. She did not say that the loud cry would go forward with the proclamation of the righteousness of Christ. It's a revelation. And there's a difference between those two things. Notice this. The angel whose glory shall fill the whole earth, right? Well, that's, that's a reference. It's an allusion to Revelation 18.1, right? After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. Okay, so a little quick standard Adventist biblical symbolism question here for you. What do the messenger angels of Revelation represent? God's people. What is glory? Character. Specifically, the character of God. So, what is it that illuminates the earth? It's the manifestation of God's character through the remnant church. And incidentally, well, I'll skip that. Let's go on. Here's Habakkuk. This is interesting because... Uh, you'll notice this expression right here, shall, shall fill the whole earth, okay? That's kind of an allusion to Habakkuk, right? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Filled with what? The knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Somebody's going to have to be showing that glory, okay? As the waters cover the sea. How is that ever supposed to happen? In this world, this secular world, this, this world where everything else is taking their attention, how is the knowledge of God's character ever supposed to happen? Through God's people... I love this statement. This is about my favorite statement. We shall see the medical missionary work broadening and deepening at every point of its progress until the whole earth is covered as the waters cover the sea. The medical missionary work is the manifestation of the glory of God. Okay? <sighs> Justification by faith in Christ will be made manifest in transformation of character. This is the sign to the world of the truth, the doctrines we profess, the daily evidence that we are living church is seen in the fact that we are practicing. A living testament goes forth to the world in consistent Christian action. What Christian action would that be, right? 
The work that the great teacher did in connection with the disciples is the example we are to follow. It is only by an unselfish interest in those in need of help that we can give a practical demonstration of the truths of the gospel. The Lord will give you success in this work, for the gospel is the power of God unto salvation when it is interwoven with the practical life, when it is lived and practiced. practiced. The union of Christ-like work for the body and Christ-like work for the soul is the true interpretation of the gospel. Now, notice a couple of words here. Only. It is only by an unselfish interest of those in need. You know, if somebody could come to me and they could give me 200 plans of how to give a practical demonstration of the gospel. And I now have 200 plans and I can save a lot of time because I know immediately I can ignore 199 of them. Because <laughs> there's only one. <laughs> it is the only way. Okay? I love it. It saves me a lot of time. Okay? Notice this word. The True interpretation. A little more grammar for you. That's an article, right? There's only three, a, an, and the. Remember that? This is the definite article. It's used to distinguish one thing from a bunch of others. Is the one and only true interpretation of the gospel. No. Oh, there are many interpretations of the gospel. No, there aren't. There's only one. Union of Christ-like work for the body and Christ-like work for the soul. Only one. Okay. Christ's method alone will give true success in reaching the people. The Savior mingled with men as the one who desired their good. He showed his sympathy for them, ministered their needs, won their confidence, then he bade them follow me. You've all heard that 18 gazillion times, I'm sure. Famous quotation, but you know what? It's true. <laughs> Christ's method alone. It's the only one. Give it up. You don't need the others. They don't work. Okay. okay, my time is long gone. I apologize, Pastor Don. If you want to read more about that, I will recommend this volume right here. Um, it has some good stuff in it, and uh, you can get that from Pastor Don's booth or from Remnant Publications. I believe they both have it here today. And just as an aside, if you happen to like Adventist history, I have a few copies of my previous book back there, and you can worry about that after the session is over. And now I will be quiet and let Pastor Don carry on. Well, let me just pray with you before I um, go on here with my part of today's uh, double hitter. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for the passion that we heard today in Dave's voice based on not his own manufactured uh, thoughts, but on uh, revelation and inspiration. And so we do want to be a part of that revelation of the righteousness of Christ. We want to understand what that is. Um, we believe there's something there that is, uh, has been missed uh, by many and by ourselves many times, and we desire that to, to happen in our lives. So bless us to that end. In Christ's name, amen. So Christ went about doing good, basically, is what uh, Dave has said. And we've got to do the same. He was anointed with the Holy Spirit and with power. Well, how do you know that, Acts 10.37? Because he went about doing good. Well, what kind of good? And healing all manner of sickness and disease. So the idea that the Holy Spirit is present is tied up with this change that comes uh, in people's lives. And they come to health. And out of that comes a sense of gratitude. And when they see that, they recognize what? 
Justification by faith is made manifest. It's made manifest in transformation of character like he just ended. This is the sign to the world of the truth of the doctrines we profess. The daily evidence that we are a living church is seen by the fact that we are practicing the word. And a living testimony goes forth to the world in consistent Christian action. That's the picture that's seen. And then Ellen White, of course, again and again refers to Isaiah 58 to illustrate that. Let's look at Isaiah 58 just for a minute because they've just read some of these quotes and I'll press forward. It starts with, cry aloud, spare and aloud, lift up your voice like a trumpet, tell my people their transgressions and the sin of Jacob their sins, right? So there's this idea of day of atonement imagery, afflicting of souls. But then it goes on and says, you love to come to ASI seminars. You love to do prayer ministries. You love to approach the Lord. But I don't hear you. <laughs> oh, man. It ends, by the way, with the Sabbath day. In other words, Isaiah 58 is an Adventist chapter. By the way, I don't have time to go through this, but it's what the book of Hebrews is based on because you have both days in the book of Hebrews. The Sabbath day, Hebrews 3 and 4, on the day of atonement, chapter 10. And it does the same thing. This is what God, Dave, and I together. I called him up one day. And I said, Dave, I discovered something in Hebrews. And he says, that's the same thing I discovered in Adventist history. And we had like a DeSozo moment. So the problem was that the preaching and prayers of the folks were going forth, but God was not hearing. There was no light. There was no loud cry. What was then the solution? Love for Christ, Christ-likeness. In other words, the love for Christ comes first, gratitude. I mean, he reveals his, himself to us, his righteousness to us and what he has done. And we, we can't help but respond. And medical missionary work then comes forth. We're never taking credit. They see our good works. They glorify the Father in heaven because they know you're not like that. I'm, I'm talking to myself. Then your righteousness shall go before you. And, and it's not yours, it's imputed and imparted. It goes before you, and the glory of the Lord goes and is your rear guard. Powerful. And this is the, then the return of this loud cry. It's all right there in Isaiah 58. Now, here's the point. Christ could have come ere this. I mean, we don't have to have Ebola Christ, a crisis. We never had to have any of this stuff happening. If we had got this thing, and I think it's exciting now that, again, we have an opportunity. Amen. And, and, and science and all these different things are kind of colluding without knowing it to help us see that what we had and what we have still in the spirit of prophecy and its counsel and its directive is true. It's true. I mean, it's true. And so we have these people that have this opportunity to see that again. And we have an opportunity to be a part of that. Now, if that happens, then there's going to be a reversal of the worst evil. And that's gospel ministers and medical missionaries workers are not united. This is the worst evil. And my family, my family is an illustration of the worst evil. <laughs> my great-grandfather was a contemporary of Kellogg and of Ellen White. He loved the Adventist 
prophetic message. He sliced it away from the practical aspect in many ways. And so that, he just rejected it during the time that there was this split between the ministers and the physicians, right? So now my cousins, my cousin is the president of the Seventh-day Baptist Church today. That's the neat, uh, you know. So, so you have that. Now I'm going to tell you something that at the end, I've got to get to the end so I can tell you what's happening with them, all right? So let me get to the end. Now, Ellen White came up with this. She sought Jones and Wagoneer sought, and everybody just loved them and totally accepted what they said. Not. So Jones and Wagoneer, you know, they were pretty much beat up, right? Ellen White was sent for an all-expenses-paid trip to the land of kangaroos to jump around down there. Nothing against people here from Australia. We love you. And notice what she did. At times before leaving America, I thought the Lord did not require me to go to a country so far away at my age. When I was prostrated by overwork. But I followed the voice of the conference. As I have ever tried to do when I had no clear light myself. Now, this is an unusual woman. Today, I don't know if this would happen. In fact, she was unusual for her day, actually, because during her day, a number of other churches <laughs> were totally doing things differently. I won't go into that because that's not the point of my talk, but during Ellen White's time, there were 27 other denominations that began ordaining women. That's a different subject. Ellen White didn't do that. She painted a bigger picture. Now, this, don't listen to me here, man. I've been on the committee studying this thing for the last two years. I'm going to suggest something to you. That's not the issue today. Our issue today is to paint an even bigger picture. Okay? And what I'm going to say here is that the, messages of right, the message of righteousness by faith applied is that bigger picture. It would take care of multitudinous problems if we just saw that. Okay? So now let's look at that. She goes down under. What happens down under? Here is the thunder from down under, okay? 1894. She says this. It has been presented that Australasia is the field in which we will do a model work, a work that will show to our friends and brethren in other lands how the evangelistic work and the medical work should be carried forward in perfect agreement, in perfect harmony, blended together. Now, what happened with Kellogg was that he got, he flaked out, he got frosted, and he went one way. And he separated, he separated, I mean, he was converted during Dave's top, but during mine he's not, okay? So, he got, he was converted at that time, but then he got diverted, and he began to look just at the medical aspect without the prophetic aspect, and he did great things, but not the greatest things. Ellen White went down and blended the two. And thereby, well, presented a model work. Well, what exactly? What were the components that came out? Ellen White to S.N. Haskell, who, after James and his wife died, thought that she was Maybe going to be his wife. Of course, she said no. That's another story. But he wrote the most of her of almost anybody. 
if you know that, okay? But he writes, or she writes back to him, too much dependence is placed upon preachers, while the house-to-house work is much neglected. She then just began talking about, you need to go house-to-house. You need to be in people's homes. How many of you have noticed if you go into people's homes, something changes? There's something that changes. Next, there needed to be a change not only in house-to-house work, but in evangelism in the local churches. Christian help work, which Dave mentioned, is the Lord's way of bringing the suffering and loss to the knowledge of the gospel. It conforms more nearly to our Savior's method of work as revealed in his earthly life. A.G. Daniels got it. I mean, he listened to L.O.I. He says, that's the way it's supposed to go. A change in education, not just house-to-house work, not just... uh, in evangelism, but also education. W.C. White, Will C. White, bemoaned the entire absence of any special instruction to fit students to care for the sick in connection with Christian help work. And education and training Bible work, for Bible work is necessary, so also is a thorough education and training required that the worker may intelligently minister to the poor and sick. So she's calling for education that blends these two. A change in education continued to be talked about, and notice what happened. He desired that faithful education be given to the thorough instruction of students in nursing and Christian help work, as in Bible work, and within one year, those changes were made. So what happened in Australia was this. Ellen White went down with this complete package of righteousness by faith blended with medical missionary work. Instantly, it began to be instituted. Instantly. Because there was none of the baggage. There was no battles near the creek, so to speak. And then they had these, it just helps me stay involved, okay, guys? So I'm hoping it helps you too. Elder and Mrs. Carroll, they were a minister and dentist team. Medical work in Australia is destined to be do more in this field than it has done in America, said Carroll. We want nurses who are Bible workers, and we want Bible workers and canvassers who are nurses. I love that statement, since I'm a nurse and a pastor. I'm a purse. I put the two together. And they said there's a lot of money to take to the bank with that, okay? So, so there was a change in education. There was to be this blending. The College of Medical Evangelists, right? If you read their early journals, they had it. And then they lost it. Now they're getting it back with amen, though. Adventist Medical Evangelism Network. Then this idea of comprehensive camp meetings. Look at this. I love this. You've never seen a camp meeting like this, but you should. In fact, when you go back to your conferences, call for this. Holding a camp meeting, following it with a tent meeting, accompanied by visiting, Bible work, selling of the Bell Echo, religious and health books, and by Christian help work and the establishment of a medical mission. Sometimes camp meetings went on for several months. We're not like little convocations like we have. They were meant to establish the work. And it was based on Christian help work. So a summary of what happened down another. Number one, Ellen White modeled medical missionary work in a personal way like Jesus. In fact, in her home, just like Kellogg didn't have an orphanage, she didn't have one either. And at one time I, I read somewhere that she had quite a number of people living in her own home. Someone said up to 40 people. I mean, this is a full-time prophet. You know, and that's her side job. No, she didn't see it as a side job. 
She thought it was very important. She modeled Christian health work. I love it. I mean, Ellen White would always model things people weren't doing. One time they said, public evangelism doesn't work. So she's 80 years old, goes through the eastern seaboard, holds all kinds of meetings. She's 80. Because the general conference president said, I don't think I can do that. Okay, let me show you how to do that at 80. Amen. <laughs> and basically turn things around. So she modeled medical mission work in a personal way because she wanted to be like Jesus. She saw his righteousness. She says, I want to be like that. And there was a change in the way evangelism was done in local churches. It was done to be like Jesus. <laughs> and there, the, the work of men and women was also down under compensated and recognized Men and women both were paid from the tithe. Amen. Amen. Now, they didn't, you know, reorganize the entire meaning of Scripture. They just <laughs> did the right thing. And they were so busy that they didn't have time for those divisive type things. Because they're all... Look... We don't have time for those kind of things. There are all kinds of things to do. And I'm going to tell you about that in just a minute. Number four, there was a change in educational curriculums, like I already mentioned, to be more like Jesus. I mean, fascinating. I think we're just looking too small. You know, I actually have people that, I run a little school now, and they say, well, how do you have so much time to do outreach? I said, wait a minute. How do you have so much time not to do outreach? If Jesus went about doing good, and you have an education that takes people for four years for undergraduate, and four years for graduate, and then four years for residency, and then you wonder, why don't they know how to witness? Maybe we should incorporate it. You know, the interesting thing is that the apostles wrote the, 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 the New Testament after Jesus died. <laughs> they had too much to do till then. Wrote down their class notes. Are you with me? Amen. All right. Thanks, thanks for sticking with me there. Number five, <laughs> there was a change in the way camp meetings and evangelistic meetings were done. It was more like Jesus. So what was the result? Look at this fascinating result. Those that studied the statistics down there, this is what they found. In 18, by 1899, just six years, 1894 to 1900, Seventh-day Adventists, because of the ministry known as Christian help work, were known throughout Australia and New Zealand, according to the archivist who looked at all the numbers down under at that time. And they more than doubled their membership between the beginning of that ministry in 1894 to 1900. In other words, she had said, this will be an example, and in fact, it was an example. Very simply, they were trying to be like Jesus. And it worked. Amen. It worked. Amen. It worked. Right? It worked. Now, here's the thing. Will it still work? If we look at Jesus, will he so change us? Will we look at what he did and what he's done and what he wants to do? Will he impute and impart and empower us to do the same? Where faith is, good works appear. 
the sick are visited, the poor are cared for, the fatherless and widows are not neglected, the naked are clothed, and the destitute are fed. There's righteousness by faith that actually works. It works. So what about now? Let me just tell you a couple stories <laughs> um, as we close up here. It's not very complicated, okay? It's not very complicated. Uh, we, did a, we started a little school. Um, I had been doing evangelism training with amazing facts, which I loved. And I still love that aspect. But what I discovered was that there were a lot more people that were interested in their health than they were interested in the things we were knocking on doors for. So here's a pie, right? And when we would knock on doors, about this many people were interested in what we had to say, and we missed this many. But now I've found that if I go out and talk to them about their needs, physical, emotional, mental, spiritual, they're much more open, right, to the whole thing. So what we ended up doing, and I, I don't have... Well, how much time do I have? But we, we, we disconnected the prophetic from the practical. I'm going to talk about this tomorrow at the Amen Luncheon. For, I'm going to talk about that because this is so essential. At this school, we kind of put that back together. And one of the things that, that we did, I'll just tell you a couple things and we'll talk a little bit more. We, we partner with ASI. Let me tell you, I went to this ASI convention in, in uh, Pacific Union. And they asked me a couple years ago to speak. And I don't know if it was the spirit of the Lord that came over me. I'm not, I'm not sure. But I said something kind of semi-provocative. And I don't want to offend anybody here even by re retelling it because I don't want to die here at ASI. I mean, it might be the first. I basically said, why are we spending all this money on these nice meals and this nice hotel? And why are all these booths set up when we all know who the rich people are and we should just go talk to them? And I didn't realize I had said that, but I said that, and I was like, why did I, why did I say that? But then I said something even worse. I said, what if we just, well, why are all these choirs singing to us when there's lost people? <laughs> I thought that was it. I thought, never, never an invitation to ASI. In fact, <laughs> maybe we should erase this part of the tape here. But I said that, and then afterwards they came and said, no, no you, we want to talk to you. That was like the, that chapter. And they began talking about, and they visioned that maybe next year, instead of being in this little hotel, they would go and try and do something. And they went to San Francisco. Well, they went to a bunch of cities, and finally the mayor of San Francisco said, look, we want you to come. Huge, great controversy went on behind the scenes, back and forth. Anyway, long story short, controversy within, controversy without, I can't take any credit except for what a minister can take credit for, which is Ellen White says one of the major rules of a minister is to support with pen and voice. <laughs> Don't touch people, it might hurt them, but pen and voice. No, I, I got involved with the other as well, and they got really behind this, and so the Bridges of Health thing was born, and we were terrified, actually all of them were terrified, but we were buoyed up by this statement. Our work in this city, San Francisco, must broaden and deepen God sees in it many souls to be saved. They need to have a revelation of the character of God. They need to see the righteousness of Christ, right? 
revealed. So how do, how do you reach that city? It's got all kinds of roadblocks. <clears throat> so they went with the Bridges of Health. Now, we went down there, we did this free medical dental clinic. You can see the eye exam rooms there with the, the plastic trash bags over the top. You can see the dental clinic. You can see in the middle where the choirs were all set up. You can see the people lining up. They lined up for 20 or 25 hours before. These are all the dentists working. There was a donation of this particular piece of equipment from one of the dental companies. They were making crowns for people, filling in the gaps, restoring the breach in their teeth. Our students were doing massages. Our students were doing health coaching. Our students had been trained, and I'll tell you about that earlier, and they just loved this. They were working with these people. They were pouring themselves out, as Dave said, and they loved it. In fact, even today, they talk about it. We did the eye exams. We got all these machines. We're going to do more of that coming up. And choirs were singing. The second day, I said, why don't we all sing Amazing Grace right at 12 o'clock? We won't tell anybody. We'll just all start singing Amazing Grace. And I, was, I wanted to know who I was sitting with at that time. I was sitting next to this patient, and he goes, I said, Amazing Grace. You know, I'm taking their blood pressure. And he says, who are you people? <laughs> who are you people? And I said, what do you mean? He goes, I love that song, but I never would admit it in this town. Right? Security guard comes up to me and he says, first day he goes to me, what's, you seem to be someone that knows about what's happening here. I said, well, depends on what you say next. Uh, I might admit to that or not. He says, why is it that you are here? This is a very dark section of town. By the way, the other side was a pornography studio. My students didn't know that. They went to the wrong side. They called me up and said, Pastor Don, where have you sent us? What was the name you used for the prostitutes and the others? I should have said, I've sent you to the fallen. I said, no, leave that side of the building slowly so as not to attract attention. Go to the other side. And there they were. But anyway, he said to me, this is a dark section of time. This is, you know, people get knifed here. He went like that to me. He was knifed here. And I was like, ooh. And it was kind of an air knife. And, and he says, they get hurt. And you're down here. What are you doing? I said, well, we're just trying to be like Jesus. And he said, Jesus died. It's pretty, pretty good insight, you know, it's a pretty good insight. And I was like, yeah, I said, I know, well, let's just pray. He goes, I don't pray. I said, okay, well, then I'll, I'll just pray then. So then he comes back two days later, this guy, and he was just looking at me. He was like, you know, walking around. And by the way, they mandated that we get security guards. We didn't have security guards. So we get no security guards. So they made us get security guards for an extra 30,000 bucks. 30,000 bucks! I was like, it's okay, more people to witness to, close up. We know who they are, they have uniforms on. So they came, right? He comes back two days later to me, and he says to me, I don't understand it, I can't tell you. Well, let me just put it this way. This place used to be, in my mind, a place of darkness. But now, it seems like it's a place of light. Another security guard, I'm talking to him. I'm talking to him. I says, what are you doing here in the city aside from the security guard? You look like a very intelligent young man. You look like you go great places in life. You know, calling those things which are not as though they are. That's my principle. <laughs> so, talk to him. And he says, 
he says, he goes, well, I'm here taking business. I said, really? You're taking business? Excellent. I said, you know, I, I'm into business too. He goes, really? What kind of business? I said, you know, churches, you should write a paper. Churches are big business in America. There are huge churches. They make all kinds of money. And he was really interested. He goes, that's a good idea. And I said, have you ever considered being about your father's business? And the guy, I said, you know what? I don't know why I'm saying this, but let me just say it to you. I believe God wants you to be a gospel minister for Jesus Christ. That's what I believe. I don't know why I'm saying it to you. You're a security guard. But I believe God wants you to do that. He wants you to be about your father. He started crying. You know what he said to me? My dad's a minister. He, I don't know why I'm here. I don't know why I came to San Francisco. Actually, I do know, and I shouldn't be here. He said, you're right, I should be about my father's business. You know what laid that all open? It was gospel medical missionary work. It was serving folks, singing to folks. You know, early in the morning, they often found Jesus in some secluded place, meditating, searching the scriptures, or in prayer. And with the voice of singing, he welcomed the morning light. With songs of thanksgiving, he cheered his hours of labor and brought heaven's gladness to the toil, worn and disheartened. I mean, Patty's on the back here. All these different music groups, people responded to that. They couldn't believe it. They were in the middle of the rain, people out singing. How many of you have met people singing to you in the middle of the rain? They, didn't, they couldn't believe it. Now, this is, is kind of unique. After this, this clinic shut down, I went down on the coast to visit the Seventh-day Baptist heretics side of the family. No, they're not heretics, but you understand. They had gone, they had gone without the spirit of prophecy and, and without um, the sanctuary message. <laughs> which in my estimation is kind of swerving. But, so they, they, they had gone without that, and, and I got to their house, and I, and, and, and I was visiting with them, and they said, we saw, we knew you were near. I said, what do you mean? He goes, we watched TV. Well, what did what, you see? There's a clinic in San Francisco, and they serve thousands of people. You had something to do with that, didn't you? And I was like, yes. All the way along the coast, all the people watch that. There are people continuing to call because they never saw anything. Now, this is in the midst of a city that's totally bought into socialized medicine and Obamacare. But look, Obamacare, as much as it might or might not work, I don't know how you feel about it, it never brings the gospel with it. And we had thousands of people served and thousands of people lined up. Are you, are you with me? Is there something that we could bring? You know what that really is that was brought there? It was the righteousness of Christ. It was just a practical demonstration of that. Uh, I think it was like 18. So one of my greatest joys was to see my students from my little school, the health school. They were terrified. I don't know what to say. I said, you went to our school and you're saying that? It's only like two months from graduation and you're saying these kind of things? Please step out in faith. Come on, please. Of course you don't know what to say. Jesus knows what to say. He'll bring all things to your remembrance. If you studied anything. (laughs) 
And you know what? Their hardest class for their program is my class and Dr. Nedley's class. I mean, they're always like, oh, no, how am I going to do it? I don't even tell them for tests when they're coming because it terrifies them too much. But Dr. Nelly tells them, he says, this is coming, and it's going to be cumulative. Oh, man, they're like, sweating bullets. But then when I heard them out there, they were like, well, actually, maybe you should consider this. And they were like giving these like, wonderful health talks to everybody, contextualized to their needs. And I heard the patients going, well, that's a great idea. How do you know that? And I'm like, yeah, how do you know that? And God brought it to the remembrance. As they were coming back, they said, God did it. He reminded me of those things. You know, they actually did better on the test. I said, maybe we should go serve people before every test. Anyway, well, I'm a little excited, but let me, um, let me just say this, you know, free clinics fill a medical void. 21% of Americans scramble to pay bills, many foregoing dental care. That's 73,500,000 people that still need help. And we still have the essential work of reading this, reaching the cities. There's now five cities that have lined up after San Francisco asking for help, and a whole bunch of smaller ones. I'm getting calls every day. I don't care where you live. It doesn't have to be San Francisco. It doesn't have to be San Antonio. By the way, in San Antonio, we're looking for 1,500 volunteers. Now we're looking for 1,498. So there's <laughs> San Antonio. But there's so much more. If it's going to fill the world as an ocean, it's going to be a blending of the medical missionary work with the gospel work. It's the gospel revealed. By the way, let me just say something about motivation. It has to be motivated by gratitude, not the other way around. I mean, it can become legalistic. You understand what I'm saying? But when you see what God has done for you, then you can't help but say, man, I want to do it for someone else. Okay? He went about doing good. Now, here's the thing. A lot of us don't live in San Francisco. I mean, after I was there a couple, you know, a week or so, I was saying hallelujah as well. And, and, and there, because it, 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 these are rough places, right? And there's counsel about who should be working there and not working there. And, and basically, it's people that don't have kids. Or that are are, are, uh, are uh, beyond that age, you know. So, so but there is, there is a place to move in and out of the cities and whatnot. But you may not be in a big city, but let me say something that I thought was fascinating. As I study the life of Christ, he ministered in an area that was 40 miles wide by 70 miles long. He ministered and lived in a city called Nazareth, but he went about doing good in all kinds of cities, largely small cities. And I, I began to look up. I tried to search out how big is Nazareth? Now, this is what I discovered. The city of Nazareth was small, insignificant, no trade routes, little economic importance. And it was believed the population did not exceed 500 people. 500 people! Only 500 people! And we got a whole book called the New Testament written about this guy that lived in small cities. Now, this is the point. I don't care if you live in San Francisco or if you live in Muskegon. I don't care if you live in Mile, Michigan, <laughs> or Vestaberg, okay? These are small places, okay, for those of you from Michigan. <laughs> I don't care if you live in Grand Rapids or Big Rapids or Eaton Rapids. I don't care if you live in Hell, Michigan. Very small. <laughs> A unique name as well. 
look, we live in a small little hamlet there in Weimar. And I said to my students, I read this vision to them, Operation Blueberry, I called it. Be diligent to pick the berries nearest you and then search for those farthest away. Our biggest problem is that we're not even reaching out to the people close to us. I mean, I, I say this about myself, but for about five years when I worked for Amazing Facts, I was flying all over the world. And he who was everywhere was nowhere. Right? So we had this novel idea. Why don't we just take ourselves off television cameras and not do any media and just be like Jesus? He didn't have like 3ABN. I'm nothing against 3ABN. And why don't we just get really authentic and just try and reach the people that we can walk and see? Only those people. And we drew a map around our campus. We went out and we did this little thing. How can we help you? We want to help you. God's helped us. We want to help you. And they were like, really? No one's ever come from the campus to really help us out. It's only $6,000 that gets us into your programs. This was fascinating to me. So we drew, we put our eye on things, and we tried to draw a map. These are the maps. We made little groups, two-mile radius, family groups, and we now have just been going out trying to share the love of Christ in practical ways. And once they filled out their cards, we went out to their house and we did what they said. This one man says, I would like my yard cleaned up and I'd like this and that. And they said, and we're never going to see you. I was like, when someone says we're never going to see you, put a circle around that one. And then also look for the very worst, most scummy looking job that has the most payback. In other words, we want the community to see that Jesus is in the neighborhood. And as we started going out and doing that, it's been amazing. It's not hard stuff. It's like, you know, stuff I can do, like pick this up and put it over there. You know, not too difficult. Or it was amazing what's happened. And our kids have come alive. Um, as we've done that. Now, one of the needs that we saw in our community recently was that they had dental needs on the one side. So we realized that, so we brought in a dentist, and we put up these corny little free dental clinic signs, and we brought in a, a dentist and a couple other dentists, and I'm not a dentist, but I'm trying to look like I'm really healthy there. And... <laughs> What we did was turned our school, and you could do this with your church, we turned it into a clinic of doing good. We took the big dairy products of Adventism, the milk and cheese, if you will, that's the doctors and the dentists, you know, the big kahuntas, the reason people go to the store, if they're not vegans, and we put them in the back of the store just like they do, you know, so you have to go past everything to get there, and we put them in the very back of the building, and we said, yeah, you can see them, but you got to see these people first. Oh, this was beautiful. So they went through a health expo, and they went through all these different things. And basically what was happening was that they were being bathed in the Holy Spirit because these people loved Jesus, and they were meeting them, and they were talking to them, and all the students were rubbing their backs, and they were doing all this stuff, and then they were praying with them, and they were talking to them, and they were singing to them, Right? And finally, they got back to, to the dentist. <laughs> right? And you would just, it was the same thing that happened on a micro level that had happened in San Francisco. Now, by the way, in San Francisco, the people, when they got prescriptions 
for glasses, we said, we'll fill those prescriptions at the church next week. Uh -huh. The first time they really saw well was when they saw the church. You say amen? amen. And, and I think we've got to sophisticate this more, but you know, in ours as well, there was this one guy, he was out front. My little daughter, I had her help, and she goes, No, Dad, I don't want to get up. When she was over there helping, she was going, This is great. She never does that with her arms. And she heard this guy on the phone, and this guy's on the phone out in the parking lot, you know, and he's saying, You've got to come down here. No, no, I'm, no, don't talk to me. Come down here. They are giving free eyeglasses. Come, no, don't. Hang up the phone. Get in the car. And my, my daughter hears that, right? And these other people come. These other people come. In San Francisco, we turn thousands of people away. In our small hamlet, we turn, I think, 10 people away. And then this un unique dynamic has happened. Let me just tell you that what's happened. As I've seen this coupling of the two, the, the practical manifestation of the theoretical, prophetic, and theological framework, we're very big on theoretical written material. We're very small on revelatory incarnational application. But when those came together, Something unique happened to me, and it didn't happen for many years. And this is, I'll tell you what happened. I got a call one day from this person who was attending one of the cooking schools, and they said, could I talk to you? And I said, well, I'm kind of busy right now because we're doing this and that. And he goes, okay, I'm Googling your house. I'll be over there tomorrow during your free time. I was like, I've never had anyone Google my house, you know, like that. So he comes with his wife and family, and he says, look, let me just cut to the chase. We like what we're seeing here. We want to be members of your church. How do we join your church? I was like, well, don't you, get, get, we, I've, I've got 28 things to, I'm, um, are you interested in what we believe? No, I know what you believe. Well, what do we believe? Well, you're just doing what Jesus did. I was like, now, that started to happen. I've had eight people Google me and come to my house over the last six, eight months. I think, look, I believe, I know that if we practically project and demonstrate our gratitude to Jesus in this way, something's going to happen. We've, I mean, it does happen. Why are we still here? Why are we still here? Unbelief, worldliness, unconsecration, strife. Does that describe our church today? We need to believe in Christ and his righteousness. And I believe he's going to I know. <laughs> My eyes have seen the glory. Small. I know it. I've seen it happen. Now, my brother, he's out of the church. He's been out of the church. I saw him yesterday. He lives here in Michigan. I went to him. I gave him this talk because I said, if a talk doesn't work with an ex-Adventist, it's not going to even work with the Adventists because a lot of them are ex, even though they don't know it. <laughs> so that was my theory. I gave him this talk in Ponderosa. Don't worry, I had potatoes. And as I gave him the talk, you know what he said to me in the middle of the talk? 
He said, could I be a part of that next year? Would you call me up? I never have seen him do that before. He said, he's a physical therapist. I want to be a part of that team in San Diego. Can I come? And then he said, I'd like to have a couple of my associates come too. And then as he's leaving, okay, again, understand there was all kinds of baggage in the room. That being me, I'm part of his baggage, right? I'm like one of the bigger pieces of luggage. (laughs) Then there was my parents, more baggage. And I was like, how am I going to talk to him about spiritual things in front of my family and in front of myself when I've done a lot of bad things to my brother that I've told him I'm sorry for, but he doesn't believe me. And, and the devil doesn't want to let him. But when I shared that for the first time, first time in 25 years, he says, I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of that. And it simply was because, it wasn't because I, I mean, I, I could talk. It wasn't because of anything I said, really. It was because of what God's people did. It was an application of the message of righteousness by faith that actually works. Are you with me? So I hope you heard something today that blesses you. Did you hear what Dave said? There was a time when we had it, it was, it was, it was cooking with, with gas, right? It was coming together. The devil ripped it apart. A lot of the dynamics we have now were all in the air. There were all kinds of theories. What we have to do is empower unempowered people. There's a truth to that. And we, we have to do this. And it became a class warfare thing for a lot of churches. Those churches imploded. They're not anywhere. Ellen White drew a Bigger picture, she applied all this in Australia. It worked, and it will work again today. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you today for the small mercy drops that around us are falling. And Lord, we're not where we need to be. Paul said that. We've not attained And yet we press forward to the high mark of the upward call. We desire to see an even deeper picture, a revelation of who you are. And we desire to be humbly submitted with no pride, laying the glory of man in the dust, used to be a revelation as well. And to that end, we commit our lives again now, whether we live in a small hamlet or whether we live in a metro area, whether we live with, in a small circle or our influence is vast, we ask that you would focus us to deal with the one sole audience, the Nicodemus, the woman at the well. Focus us, Lord, on you. Fill us with gratitude to you. And focus us on others to share our gratitude with them. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI 
Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.